this this man, this pastor, martyr, prophet, spy, had this love story in his life, and I immediately wanted to know what kind of a woman would capture the heart of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so I set out to answer that question, and what the answer really actually surprised me, and I think it surprised me, probably like it surprised Dietrich falling in love at such an unlikely time in his life. Something about a good love story that we just can't resist. And boy, do we have one for you today, my misfit friends. It's your basic love story. Boy meets girl. Boy gets caught up trying to defeat Hitler. Girl waits for boy. Yeah, just like every other story out there. Except not. We are in for such a treat because right now, like this very minute, I get to talk to you and you get to listen to a woman who wrote such a love story. And here's the thing. It's not historical fiction. Oh, no, no. It's all true. Her name is Amanda Barrett, and she is a best-selling author who, among other fine works, has written about the truth is stranger than fiction love story between Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Maria von Wiedemeyer, and she's going to tell me in a second if I pronounce that correctly. And if you don't know who either of those people are, you should, and you will. So, welcome to you, Amanda. I have been so looking forward to this conversation. Yes, it is so great to be here. I've been so excited to chat with you about this story. Me, me too. Oh my gosh. So yeah, so I I have to ask you, um, did I pronounce Maria's last name correctly? Maria von Wiedemeyer, or is it Wiedemeyer because it's German? So it actually is Wiedemeyer, yes. It is, I believe, I've learned that only through writing this book, that Germans tend to pronounce their W's more like a V. So it's not Wittenberg, it's Wittenberg, and things like that. So it is Wiedemeyer, actually. And I just learned that over the past couple of years, so... Got it. So, yeah, and somehow I knew that in the back of my mind, but being the American that I am, you know, I just went right for the, the easy route. So, so and it's, okay, so Wedemeyer, Maria von Wedemeyer. All right, and we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more, hopefully a lot more about her um, in just a moment. And, you know, this is actually, for those who know the story and who don't know the story, it's, it's kind of a serious topic. And nonetheless, I am undaunted and compelled to carry on my time-honored misfit tradition of playing a stupid game with you, my guest, if, in fact, you are so inclined to indulge me. Oh, absolutely. Oh, she's so nice. All right, you heard her. She said yes, so we're going to just move forward. So um, as I tell my guests, I custom-make each stupid game in the time-honored tradition of our forefathers to, uh, to match something that I know about you. And I know you to be an expert on the subject of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so here you go. So your stupid game is called So You Think You Know All About Dietrich. So what we're going to do, I'm going to give you three fun facts. One of them is false, and your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to tell me and the misfits which one is a bold-faced lie. Are you ready? Mission accepted. Okay, here we go. Number one, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Failed his American driving test three times. Number two, he loved bullfighting. Number three, fun fact, Bonhoeffer earned his doctorate 
at the tender age of 19. Which one is a lie? The last one. He earned his doctorate at the age of 21. I can't fool this woman. You are absolutely correct. I thought I might throw you with the bullfighting one, but yes, yes. Not at the tender age of 19, the tender age of 21. So he was a little bit of a slacker, but, you know, we'll give him, we'll give him some, uh, <laughs> some grace there. But, yes, congratulations. You did excellent on this stupid game and for your participation you, my friend, can look forward to receiving your very own Isle of Misfits official Own Your Awkward mug. And all the gears. Oh, how awesome! With it. Oh, yes. Uh, it is my joy to share the awkwardness with all of my guests. So thanks so much for playing. You did great. That, yeah, I love that. And I love the driving test one because I actually failed my first driving test. So when I learned that about Bonhoeffer, I thought, well, this genius failed his driving test, so I guess I don't have to feel too bad. Exactly. You're in good company. Okay. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, it's time to, to get into the real reason that you're here. So here's my first question. What got you interested in Dietrich Bonhoeffer anyway? So I first discovered Dietrich's story through Eric Metaxas's Seven Men in the Secrets of Their Greatness book, which is an amazing book. But I wasn't inspired to share his love story until a few months later, after reading that book, I came across a quote from Love Letters from Cell 92, which is the book that is the correspondence between that Dietrich and Maria exchanged in their relationship. And at that moment, I thought, wow. This this man, this pastor, martyr, prophet, spy, had this love story in his life. And I immediately wanted to know what kind of a woman would capture the heart of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so I set out to answer that question. And what the answer really actually surprised me. And I think it surprised me. I'll probably like it surprised Dietrich falling in love at such an unlikely time in his life. Right. So, all right. I'm going to even back up further because I think a fair amount of our listeners know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, but I think there's enough people who maybe don't know or who aren't familiar enough that maybe maybe we should spend a minute just talking about him and wh- who who was he and why should we care about him? Yeah, I love talking about Dietrich. So Dietrich was a German pastor, author, and theologian who be came involved in the conspiracy that was going on um, in the not, during World War II against Adolf Hitler because from very early on he knew that the ideology that the Nazis were trumpeting was not only that detrimental to Germany, but it was diametrically opposed to everything a Christian country should look like. And so because of this, of his connection with and involvement in the conspiracy, he was imprisoned, and he was executed at Flossenburg concentration camp at the age of 39 on the express order of Hitler. So he is he is this example of a Christian who took responsible action. He didn't just stand by like so many other so-called good German Christians were doing at that time. He said, there is this need here, and God calls us need to, to us to answer the need. And so that led him to then take this action, even though it was maybe an unlikely step for somebody who was a pastor. Okay. So, so yeah, that's a good summary of who he was and, and just fascinating character. I, I will admit, I you know, you mentioned Metaxas, and I, I read the book that Metaxas wrote about him uh, several years ago. Um, 
really great. And yeah, even that book didn't get into the the whole love story between between him and Maria. So I love that you have kind of taken that baton and run with it. So, you know, some people, like I said, they're familiar with that story, but that story's never really been told. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Maria? Who was who is she? And like you said, how how did this woman capture his heart? Yes, Maria is one of those examples I think that sometimes we get in history where these heroes take center stage and the women who stood behind those heroes kind of get relegated to the background when really they need to be standing right alongside their hero man because they, they too made sacrifices and were really incredible individuals. Dietrich met Maria in the summer of 1942 at the home of Maria's grandmother, and Maria was 18 and Bonhoeffer was 36. And so between them, there was an 18-year age difference between them, which is one of the many reasons why their romance was so, so improbable. And she was the daughter of Prussian aristocracy. Her father was very anti-Nazi and actually refused to hang a swastika on his property. And her grandmother was the first one to kind of get her family connected with Dietrich because uh, Dietrich ran uh, a seminary at Finkenwalde, which was this underground um, seminary where he was taking these pastors and putting them through a training course because there really wasn't anything at that time available for pastors who didn't want to go along with what Hitler's Reich Church was was trying to get people to do because they just wanted the Reich Church just wanted to make Hitler the god they wanted to take down the crucifixes and put up pictures of Hitler and Dietrich knew that was wrong so he was training these young pastors and Maria's grandmother was a really ardent supporter of that so isn't that amazing and and Okay, I'm sorry, I'm interjecting here, but what you just said, and Dietrich knew that was wrong. I mean, so we have the benefit of looking back in history to say, well, of course he knew that was wrong. Everyone should have known that was wrong. And yet at the time, they didn't, which fascinates me. Um, I don't know, like, if you had any thoughts about that, like, how how that could be that it would be so unusual. Yeah, Dietrich kind of had... almost like this insider scoop because his brother-in-law Hans von Donani worked for um, the German military intelligence the Abwehr and so he kind of knew a lot of the evil that was going on very early on and was actually Hans von Donani was compiling this dossier of Nazi crime called the Chronicle of Shame so he had photographic evidence he had written evidence and it's because of this dossier that Dietrich eventually ended up getting arrested but I think Dietrich was even very early on their family was having conversations about what was going on that Hitler was evil and that they needed to do something about it so he knew a lot more I would say than maybe some of the other German people that lived during that time right and they they all saw the same things and yet somehow his eyes were more open to what was actually going on in a few minutes I want to circle back to that because I think there are some parallels to what was going on at that time and now, but we'll I'll bookmark that and we'll come back to that later. So so they've met they met through the through uh, the grandmother and she catches his eye. So tell us without you know people need to read the book. So without giving the whole story away, just tell us a little bit about their early courtship. 
So they met that evening in June. Well, they actually had known each other when Maria was about 12 because Maria's grandmother was such a fan of Dietrich. She wanted um, him to do the confirmation classes because they were Lutheran, so they went through this confirmation program. And so Dietrich sat down with Maria, Maria's brother, and a few other cousins and set out to give them the confirmation exam. Well, the other children passed, but for whatever reason, 12-year-old Maria flunked this confirmation exam. And I'm sure she was kind of mortified because her grandmother was looking on and she really looked up to her grandmother. But after that, they didn't have a lot of contact until June when they met that evening after she just graduated from boarding school and she was visiting her grandmother. And Dietrich was there working on a book, as he liked to do. He liked to go to Maria's grandmother's house and write because it was a place that he could get away. And there was just this, this instant connection between the two of them, these two people like who had known each other, finding each other again. And I think Dietrich, who had never really had a relationship with a woman seriously, really started to look at Maria in a new light and possibly consider that despite all these improbable reasons for them not to have a relationship, he just started to think along those lines. Yeah, and I actually love that scene where he meets her because, like, she basically had just beat up a kid who was bullying somebody. <laughs> or, it was great. And, you know, perhaps... I don't know. Perhaps that was part of what drew him to her. I, I like this girl. She's spunky. But um, yeah, that was that was great. So that scene, I'm I'm imagining that that was not conjecture. Did that? Do you know if that really happened, or was that just you're taking some literary license? So what I Maria wrote a little article um, quite a few years after Dietrich's um, years after the war, and she said that. When they met that evening in June, she she used to take, she, this is her word, she used to take a very cocky tone with her grandmother, which she maintained even after Dietrich turned up. So obviously there was some manifestation of her being this fiery woman that she was. So I don't know if it was exactly what I had, but obviously there was something because that's how she described it. Yes, passion, a woman of great passion and conviction. Absolutely. So this kind of leads me to, to kind of the next question that it's obvious you've done a lot of research and that research had to be out there. And yet, again, nobody has really written about this in, in a, you know, in a broad way. So I'm just curious, how on earth did you discover all of this about her? Yes, there's not been a lot about Maria. The very first biography ever written about Dietrich was written by his best friend, Eberhard Betka. And this book is a thousand, over a thousand pages long, and Maria is only mentioned on four of them. And which to me was partly was because Maria was still living when the biography was published, and I think Eberhard was trying to preserve her privacy. But still, I mean, she occupied such a great space in these final years of his life. And so the best resource about Maria was the Love Letters from Cell 92, which was published um, in the 90s and compiled by her sister. And so that had their letters. And so that was my my main resource. And I also, I read a lot that Bonhoeffer had written around that time. I read his books and I read um, the letters he wrote to his best friend while he was in prison and some of those mentioned Maria. And I did just, I, this, the research for this book took was like a three year process because there was so much to get into. And one of my favorite resources that I discovered was in 1974, 
Maria did this um, television documentary interview with Malcolm Muggeridge's A Third Testament, where he was doing this segment on Bonhoeffer, and she, oh, she was so reticent. Yeah, it was amazing. I just I, there was a line in the Love Letters book where Maria's sister mentioned that Maria had done this interview, and so I immediately just went on this mad hunt all across the internet looking for was there a DVD available of this, and I found one. And so. She actually, though she was so reticent to talk about Dietrich, she actually interviewed with Malcolm Muggeridge, and so I got to hear it from her, and that was, to me, one of the most powerful moments of the research process, because here she is, she's a successful woman, 30 years after she knew she was in a relationship with Dietrich, and yet the emotion in which she speaks of him is just, it spoke volumes, almost less of what she was saying than more of what she was leaving unsaid about the depth of her feeling for him. I mean, she obviously just really cemented in my mind the, the relationship these two have and the, and the love these two shared, even though they really did not see each other much after their engagement, except in prison, because that because by the time they were permitted to see each other, he'd been arrested and taken to Tegel. This is so fascinating to me. I had no idea that 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 interview with Malcolm Muggeridge existed. So is, is this something that if somebody was as determined, they could find this out there somewhere? Absolutely, yes. I got the DVD on Amazon. It's Malcolm Muggeridge's A Third Testament. And he did multiple, um, there's multiple interviews on the DVD of different great men of faith, and Bonhoeffer has an hour-long segment, and there are, there were some great interviews in there, um, some with Eberhard Betke and Eberhard's wife, um, Renata, who is Dietrich's niece, so this Malcolm Muggers did a lot of really great research into the, and to get these interviews, and I was so amazed that he was able to get Maria to do them, because she didn't really talk a lot about Dietrich after his, after his death. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. So I'm definitely going to have to look up uh, this thing. So thank you so much for that. So, okay, yeah, so you said she was reticent. She didn't talk. And that was, yeah, something that I, that I had kind of heard, that she really didn't like to talk about him much after the fact. And, you know, I, I think I can understand why, um, at least in my mind. But what, why do you think that she didn't want to talk about him very much? Well, after the war, um, Maria moved to America, and she attended Bryn Mawr University, and she married twice, and sadly, both of her marriages ended in divorce for various reasons, but I think she was very much trying to forge a new life for herself, as were so many people who had lived through the days of World War II, especially Germans, who were dealing with that, almost that you know, stigma that they were German people, because I think that it was very hard for Germans to come over sometimes and make a new life because they were labeled almost as Nazis. And so I think that's why. And I also think that because, it's, and this is true with, I think, a lot of us, when something means a lot to us, it's often really hard, I think, to put that into words and to speak about it a lot. We often tend to pull it close to ourselves and keep it there. So I think that's what she did. And I think that's why she was kind of so reluctant for quite a while to not allow anyone to look at the correspondence she and Dietrich had exchanged because she just wanted to keep that to herself because that's kind of all she had of him. They never had a picture taken together. He never really gave her a lot of things to remind, you know, he never really, he wasn't able to go and buy her a wedding ring or any kind of, a lot of gifts. And so those letters were really what she had of him. Wow, wow. And, and that's such a really compelling point that you bring up that, you know, the, the fact that she didn't want to, to share so freely about that, you know, there, 
it brings up to me, you know, a lot of times people, you know, you hear about war veterans, World War II or any war, a lot of times it's very typical that they don't want to talk about that experience either. And part of it is obviously the pain, but also I think there's there's an element you know, more so with with this story that it's painful, but it's also very precious, as you said, and we do tend to hold these things close to our heart. And that's... Uh, that's fascinating to me that and he didn't give her you know trinkets as you said mementos but what she had was to ponder it in her heart yeah absolutely yeah that was like yeah those letters were so precious to her and it was really only shortly before her death she died at the age of 53 from cancer after just four months a four month battle with cancer and then and she really didn't want, she didn't, for so long, she didn't want those letters to be seen. She kept them with herself. And then finally, she spoke to her sister and said, I want you to be the one to publish these letters. And there's a scene of that, about that in the novel, in the epilogue. So that was one of my, the most emotional scenes in the novel for me to write. And, hmm. and you know, it, it puts me in mind a little bit of, you know, uh, Oswald Chambers, if you've ever heard of him, there's this sort of a parallel story where his wife, Biddy, she was the one that published all of his his works, all of you know what we know as my utmost for his highest, are his snippets of sermons and teachings that he did over the years that she meticulously transcribed for him. So, um, you know, you said earlier, you know, the these women who were very every bit as much a part of the the story as as the men who they supported. Yet, you know, here's another case, and Maria certainly was that. Um, how do you think she inspired Dietrich, speaking of? I think she inspired him. I think she inspired him to really have human, so these very human, these motions of falling in love. I mean, he didn't. It was thir- he was 36 when he met her, and I think she kind of opened up a whole new part of his heart. Um, in prison, he wrote her this poem called "The Past," and he didn't he didn't really write a lot of poetry, but this is one of the poems that he wrote, and I've included sections of it in the novel because it's so raw and so honest about how hard it was to be parted from her, to see her for an hour, and then have her be let out one door by a guard, and him have to stay there. So, I think she just I think she inspired him, and I also think she inspired hope in him. I mean, while he was in Tegel prison, for a really long time they thought that he was going to be released because he was kind of in there just because there was some suspicion about this currency irregularity that had taken place due to this, where he and Hans had smuggled these Jews into Switzerland and there was some currency issues with that. And so for so long, I think that he just... He maybe was, he was a conspirator, he was a pastor, he was a theologian, he wasn't a man in love, but through Maria we see him as this man in love, we see him fighting, you know, he fought falling in love and struggled in the midst of being this great man, this great pastor, you know, in prison he wrote some of his most famous works while he was in this relationship with her. And she inspired hope. I love that. I love that. You know, here here we have this man who, in many ways, is one of the most influential men in the 20th century. Even if we don't, you know, have name recognition, he certainly had huge influence um, at his time, and and even more so in the decades that have surpassed him. Um, but this woman inspired him in some of his most important writings from prison, um, and. They, they were dangerous times, you know, this 
this was not a, your typical romance, even though I joked about it at the beginning. And I I want to circle back to something that I that I said we'd bookmark and come back to. So, yeah, there were dangerous times. There was definitely um, in the cultural parallels, I guess, is what I want to say. There, it's easy to see some cultural parallels between what was going on at that time and what's going on now. I want to kind of wrap this up by by asking you what what do you think are the takeaways from their story that resonate with maybe what a lot of us are facing in today's culture? Well, I love that question because this story just it it, it, it challenged and changed and convicted me so much I was as I was writing it. And what I love about Dietrich is that he did not turn a blind eye. He took action, even if that action was hard. And in the cost of discipleship, he wrote, "When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die." And when Dietrich wrote that, I don't think he meant that literally, but for him that was what it came down to. He believed that the persecution of the Jewish people, he believed that the Jewish people are our brothers and sisters and that we should support them. He wrote that only those who cry out for the Jews have the right to sing Gregorian chants. And I think we could almost paraphrase that today to say only those who speak out for the persecuted, only those who speak out for the lives of the unborn that are, you know, that are going, they ha- only those have the right to sit in church pews and sing hymns. And Bonhoeffer, he spoke out like, like when there was um, the when they were killing the people um, because of physical handicaps or other handicaps. You know, he spoke out about against that, and his father did as well. And so I think just he did was not content to be silent. He said, "We have been silent witnesses of evil deeds," and that he knew that that was wrong. Yes, he knew that that was wrong, um, and he didn't just know it, because a lot of us can say, yeah, that, that doesn't seem right, and we may even feel like we're social justice warriors when we, you know, oh, I'm going to post about this on Facebook and, you know, do my part. But he, he didn't just think it was wrong. He didn't even just say it was wrong. He he literally put his life on the line to speak out for those whom no one else would speak out for. And, um, and this... And this romance that God blessed him with toward the end of his life. You know, it wasn't just frivolous. It wasn't just, well, I'm going to, you know, I'll throw you this bone. I, 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 you know, God is so gracious that he, he gave him this gift and, and gave her the gift of Dietrich to, yeah, but to not just bless them, but to bless all of us. Oh yes, absolutely. Their romance—it's—it's of self—it shows a self-sacrifice that we just don't see. I mean, it's not the conditional as long as it feels good relationship. It's—it's living out in faith together. One of the things that he wrote to her that I love so much, he said he was talking about the fact that he hoped they'd be married, and he said, "Our marriage must be a yes to God's earth. Our marriage must be us living." less living fully in the earth, but living fully on earth for the glory and honor of God. And I think their whole relationship just really exemplifies that, not perfectly because neither of them are perfect, but it just, it does. And it just gives, it just gives, I think, a lot of hope for people who maybe are facing, you know, situations like that. Oh, and that's just so beautiful. What a beautiful way to land this because, yeah, they bolstered each other, not just emotionally, but in their faith to 
to glorify God. And that's what his life was all about. And that's what her life was all about. Um, What an amazing story. And we only scratched the surface. So I know people are are all like, I got to read this book. So tell them how they can get this book. I know it comes out in June. Yes, it releases June 9th, and so the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major online retailers. You can find information and purchase links on my website, and that's www.amandabarrett.net, and Barrett is B-A-R-R-A-T-T. I get a lot of people thinking it's E-T-T, and then I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, so they can follow me there as well, and I often post um, links and things like that. All right, well, I'm going to join your Facebook followers, my friend. Um, I'm just so thrilled to have had this conversation with you. Um, like I said, I, I've loved reading this book. Um, you know, we didn't even talk about your writing, but you, yeah, you're well-researched, but what a wonderful writer you are. It's just um, it's a joy reading through it, and I know people are going to enjoy this book. Um, so thank you so much for taking time to hang out with us misfits today, Amanda. Well, thank you so much. It was an absolute privilege, and thank you so much. I'm so glad you're enjoying the book. That means a lot to me. Well, I hope that we can have you back again sometime to talk about this or any other books that you write in the future. You are always welcome. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. That sounds awesome. So, yeah, if you're looking for that summer read, here you go, my friend. My dearest Dietrich. Although, really, it'll work just as well any time of the year. That's what happens when you blend beautiful writing with beauty and truth all in one package you can find it at amanda barrett with an a dot net or wherever you buy your books and don't forget to follow her on facebook thanks so much to amanda for joining us and thank you for hanging out and if you'd like to be a permanent hanger outer you can always subscribe to the isle of misfits.com where i promise you we will do our level best to encourage you to own your awkward love your fellow misfit and wait for you on the corner where beauty meets truth.